spend some time together in God's Word. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're here. As you can see, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. Uh, it's always an exciting time for us to be together as a family to be able to do that. Uh, but before we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about marriage, we're going to start a new series. We're going to talk about marriage for the next few weeks. Uh, we just completed that wonderful time in First Thessalonians, and now I uh, feel like we've, we need to just take a break and focus on something that uh, the Lord really, I believe, has a lot of uh, special things He wants to say to us. So we'll get our copies of Scripture out and open to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now, just say a few things uh, before we read together, and that is that uh, whenever we talk about a specific topic like we are this morning, I know there's an opportunity for some of us in the room to feel a little disconnected by that, so I just want to say a few things uh, to you if you are not married this morning. First of all, 95% of all people who are currently not married will be married at some time. And so the things that we talk about will certainly be very valuable to you. Especially this morning, uh, if you are yet to, to be married, then my goodness, if you could just take the simplicity of the things that I'm going to say this morning and sink them deep into your heart and remember them, uh, I cannot even express to you the difference that it would make uh, when the time comes and the Lord grants you the opportunity to be married. Then there are those of you in the room who were at one time married and have lost your spouse. And I would encourage you to uh, listen this morning and to think about the, the reality that uh, you wouldn't disagree with me that marriage is one of the the most under-attack areas of the body of Christ. Certainly, uh, it's, it is in our culture, in our time, in our country, but even more than that, in the body of Christ, it is a great source of discouragement and trouble. And you are some of the most valuable assets in the kingdom with regards to that. You possess all of this amazing, wonderful knowledge and experience that God has given you, and you can pass that on to other people. And I tell people all the time when I'm doing mar marital counseling, I say, well, you need to find somebody that's been married for 50 or 60 or 70 years and go talk to them, sit down with them, and listen to them because they're a great source of wisdom and encouragement. And so thank you for the people that cross your path that come to you and thank you in advance for those who will maybe through these conversations that we'll have. So it would be helpful for you to be aware of the conversations that we've had in this time so that when somebody seeks you out, you'll be able to uh, discuss these things together. So let's read Genesis chapter 2. I want us to read this section beginning in verse 15 together and we're going to uh, just sort of frame our thoughts around this text. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, the Word of God says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see that he would, what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We stand humbly before it, recognizing that this is your holy word, that you have spoken to us. God, it is a tremendous gift and privilege to possess your word and to have the privilege to discuss it this morning. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to hear clearly, to understand. We ask that you would give us ears that we could hear, that the Spirit of God would work in our hearts, that we might hear what you would have us to hear, and Lord God, that we'd be able to respond rightly, and that things in our lives would change, we'd be more like you because of the hearing of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do this morning is, and we have limited time, because like I said, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, so as we sort of start this conversation about marriage, What I want to do is give you a few principles, and then basically, I want to spend the majority of our time just laying two puzzle pieces out so that you can begin to see some things that I think will sort of set the framework for where we're going to go in the next few weeks. These two puzzle pieces are very, very critical and most often overlooked uh, in relationships Uh, as I get involved with people and begin to help them. And so I believe that this will be very beneficial and fruitful for us this morning. But I want us to just really just uh, take a nice deep breath of some simple realities and allow God to work mightily in them. So three principles. Principle number one, marriage is not easy. It isn't easy. There's nothing actually easy about marriage. Marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life in a room that is too warm with someone sleeping next to someone who believes it's too cold. (laughs) Everything is complicated in marriage. From the temperature in the room, to who's hogging up the blankets, to, you know, where you put your dirty clothes, to where you set your toothbrush... Everything that one time was so simple when you lived alone. And when you get married, it becomes complex. And that's because when people get married, what happens is two imperfect people come together to make one flesh. Two imperfect people. And so if you were perfect, you wouldn't need to be married. Amen? You see all perfect people, well, but why, would you, why do you need to get married if you're perfect? And so we come together as two imperfect people, 
And in the realization of that, we realize how complex everything is and how, uh, you know, hard things, simple things can, can become difficult. I was uh, doing some premarital counseling with a couple uh, some years ago, and uh, as we approached the time of their wedding, the, uh, uh, the husband-to-be came to me, and he said, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. And I said, okay, well, what's the problem? He said, uh, listen, we're, you know, we're only a couple weeks from the wedding, and I'm really concerned about something. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, my feet stink so bad, it's unbelievable. And I'm concerned about that. And I said, well, you should be. So here's what you should do. (laughs) Every night when you go to bed, I want you to wear socks and cover them nasty things up so it doesn't bother your wife. And he said, that's a great idea. I said, so there you go. You wear socks every night. Everything will be fine. So another week passed. We were a week closer to the wedding. And then the wife comes to me. She said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I got a serious concern. And I'm like, okay. What's your concern? She said, well, you know, we're a week out from the wedding. And she said, my breath stinks so bad in the morning, it's unbelievable. And I said, well, okay. She said, I'm really concerned that when we get married, it's going to be a problem. I said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to wake up before your husband and go brush your teeth every day. Set your alarm early so you can get up early and go brush your teeth before he wakes up. And she said, okay. And I said, all right, good. So, you know, I married him, and I thought, all right, they got this thing figured out. And uh, it went along good for a while, but about a month, month and a half into the relationship, sometime during the night one night, the husband awoke and realized that one of his socks had come off. So he starts rooting around in the bed trying to find the sock, you know, without waking up his wife. And he's looking around. He's thinking, man, I got to find this sock. And he's reaching in front of fighting for it. And about that time, his wife wakes up and she said, honey, what happened? And he said, I think you ate my sock. See, we can have a lot of fun when it comes to marriage because there's so many things to make light of. And if you're married, then you know that a good marriage or a great marriage, it's not going to happen on accident. It just is not going to happen that way. And that every marriage, no matter how good it may be, is in need of encouragement. Marriages are always in need of encouragement and always in need of a boost. And it's always good for us to think about and talk about uh, our marriages because they are uh, such an important part of our life, but such a difficult oftentimes part of our lives as well. You remember when you were young and you had these ideas about marriage and you know, uh, as you were just thinking about the future and what marriage would be like, uh, You know, and I know little girls dream about getting married. They dream about walking down the aisle and what their dress will look like and, you know, how everything will be decorated and all this sort of stuff. And and when they think about this husband that they're going to 
Mary. They think that, you know, he's going to want to sit on the couch next to them all the time and not want to watch the ball game. They think that he's going to always want to hold their hand no matter where they go or what they do. Or they think that it's going to be his idea that they wear matching shirts, you know, and that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. And guys, uh, you know, think that, well, when they think about getting married in the future, you know, they think about this wife that they're going to have. And somehow in their mind, you know, we believe that she's just going to be drop dead gorgeous all the time, including first thing in the morning. We believe that she's going to love to cook, especially and only all the things that we want to eat and we think in our minds that she's somehow going to be so, find us so physically irresistible that she just can't keep her hands off us no matter uh, what we try to do. And that's just not the way it's going to go. It's just not. And uh, Lisa and I are going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary this year. And I can tell you this for sure that over the past 25 years, uh, I've learned a lot of things. And uh, but I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And I'll probably always be learning. I'll always be learning how to be a better husband and how to uh, be more effective at the things that I need to be effective at. And so trust me when I tell you, uh, I certainly don't know everything. I'm just going to share with you some things that I've learned across the way that I believe the Lord would have me share with you. The second principle, so the first one is, is that marriage isn't easy. The second one is that marriage is God's idea. It's God's idea. Now, God was the one that determined that there was going to be such a thing as marriage and that marriage was going to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And it's interesting to me that culture relentlessly tries to change or redefine marriage and culture can't redefine something that it didn't define in the first place. God was the one who made marriage. It was all his idea, and he's the one that defines it. And uh, we might do other things or uh, try other things or legalize other things, but we're not going to redefine marriage because marriage is something that belongs to God that was his from the beginning. And as I said, marriage is two imperfect people that come together to become one. One way I like to think about this is that Marriage is two people who come together. Both of them are in need of healing. You see, you're imperfect, but it's more than the fact that we're imperfect. It's the fact that we need to be healed, that there's a, there's a healing element to marriage, that there's, a, there's something that God is doing in marriage that's bringing these two imperfect people together to do something in each of them and in both of them that will heal them. And then the third pr principle is this. God created marriage to bless us. To bless us. It's not easy. It's His idea. And He did it to bless us. Did you notice in the passage in verse 18, the Scripture said that the Lord God said it's not good that man should be alone. And I'm going to make a helper comparable for him. Now we're going to come back to this in depth, this passage. But I just want you to see that God is saying here that something was not finished in Adam. You see, it's more than, I think we make a mistake when we think the problem here is that Adam was lonely. 
No, it's not that Adam was lonely. It's a lot more than that. Adam needed something beyond what he possessed. And so God made something to be the answer to that need. And so clearly we know this. Why else would... Have you ever just stopped and thought to yourself, why would we as people choose to spend the rest of our lives with another person, with one other person. I mean, have you ever just thought about how strange that is? That, you know, what else in your life do you want to spend all of your life with that same thing? I mean, everything else in your life you like for a while, but then, you know, it it gets uh, outdated or useless or broke down or something. But in marriage, we're saying, no, we, this person, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Well, well, why? And when I ask young couples who want to be married this question, they say, well, because I love them. And I always say to myself, well, really? How can you say that you love them when you don't even know them? And they say, well, I know them. And I say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know somebody until you marry them. You see, because prior to being married, in order to know somebody, uh, that, that somebody that you desire to know has to let their guard down and let you into who they fully and completely naturally are. Well, no one's going to do that until they're utterly secure and safe in that relationship. And they're not going to be utterly secure in that relationship until you get married. Which is why living together won't accomplish anything. You won't know any more about somebody than when you dated them. You see, marriage changes things. The fact that two people make this commitment to each other, it then allows those two people to let their guard down in the reality of the commitment that's been made to one another so that you can now, for the very first time, really get to know them. And if you think about this, all of us who are married would agree that you really didn't know who you were married to until you were already married. You cannot know somebody fully and completely in a dating relationship or any other relationship until that relationship is marriage and you become one flesh. And notice the scripture said down in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, why does God take the time to say about the married couple that they will separate from their previous relationships and then focus only on this new relationship? Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say, well, they're going to get married and they're going to keep on going? Every other relationship in your life that you have doesn't uh, change or negate other ones, but this one, for some reason... God says when this relationship comes about, then you, you pull back on all the other relationships. So clearly God's trying to tell us something unique and special about the marriage relationship. Okay, so three principles. Now let's put these puzzle pieces together that will begin to lay a foundation for us to understand some very important things and helpful things, I believe, about marriage. Puzzle piece number one. Now, understand, I'm thinking to myself, over 20 years of talking to people about marriage, 
What are the things that over and over and over and over again keep coming up? And they're not the things that you would think. They're not the things that come to all of your mind. I know what you're thinking, I would say. I know that you're thinking, I'm going to say, well, money or your physical relationship or your children or... But that's, that's not really it. These two puzzle pieces are the ones that are just ever present and constant and so misunderstood. Number one, opposites attract by God's design. Opposites attract by God's design. For as long as I can remember, I have been sitting down with young people who desire to be married and I've spent time with them illustrating to them how different they are. And I tell them from the very beginning that we're not going to sit in here and waste any time talking about all the ways that you two are the same. We're going to talk about all the ways that you two are different. I want you to know that the person you're endeavoring to spend the rest of your life with is utterly and completely different from you. And that's good. And I always say, I said, you know, the, the thing that is the best thing about my marriage is the fact that I married my absolute opposite. And I say, you know what that does? It keeps life spicy. You see, it never gets boring. Because when you're complete opposites, it's always an adventure. You see, if you marry somebody just like you, it's going to be a disaster. It is. And you're opposite by design. Listen, in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says something that we just go right on past that is so important to understand. God said, I will make Adam a helper comparable for him. You see this word helper? It's the word azer. That is a very specific word that means very specific things. The, the, the word azer, helper, it means to supply something that's lacking. To supply something that's lacking. Now listen, God creates a perfect environment for His creation to exist in. Now notice what He doesn't do. We have a tendency not to say this, but just to subconsciously believe that, you know, Adam's alone, that's not good, so he needs somebody to keep him company and to be there with him because it's not good for us to be alone. But God didn't make another Adam. If all he needed was somebody to hang out with, he would have just made another Adam. How much of Adam's, the rest of Adam's life was spent hanging out with other guys? A lot. I think about how much time in my life I've spent hanging around my friends. But that's not what God's talking about. He made something specific to make up for what is lacking. He didn't make another Adam. See, Two atoms just compound the problem. Then he would add two people who were imperfect and lacking. You see, I think a lot of time we, we just don't stop and think about what exactly was God's intention in giving Adam a helper. Adam's problem was so much deeper than just being alone. God made Adam an azer because he was incomplete. Now, 
We're prior to sin. We, we're prior to the... Now, as soon as you get past these verses, you get into all the problems. But right now, we're still in a, a perfect creation. And I'm telling you, God made Adam that way on purpose. And why would God make Adam incomplete on purpose? Why would he do that? What would be the motivation for God to do that? As God is creating Adam and putting him in this perfect creation, do you think that what's lost in God's mind is what is going to happen in the fullness of time that's yet to come? He's got all of this laid out. And he knows exactly how this is going to go. And he makes Adam incomplete so that he can make him a helper so that sometime way off into the future, God would begin to explain to us why that is. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Scripture says, as Paul's talking all about marriage, telling us all the amazing things he says in Ephesians 5 about marriage, he gets to verse 31, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, please tell us the reason, Paul. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, God makes Adam incomplete in the garden so that he can create him a helper. He can give him an azer who will make up for what's lacking so that this relationship that God's creating between the two of them will be a model that will for thousands and thousands of years lay a foundation for what's yet to come. This relationship between Christ and the church. Jesus and his bride. Now, what, what, is, the, what is the problem here that I'm trying to, to drive at? Well, so oftentimes in marriage, we simply don't understand the reason why we're in this relationship with somebody who is so completely different for us. In fact, many times today people say things like, well, you know what? We, we're just going to have to go our separate ways. Why are you going to have to do that? Well, because we're just so different. I'm thinking, no, no. That's exactly why you should stay together. Nobody's ever said to me, well, we're just going to have to go our separate ways. We're just too much alike. But it would make more sense biblically. Here's what happens. Spouses reject and condemn each other for the ways in which they're different. Missing the fact that that was God's design from the beginning. He put something in your heart that when you began to prepare to be married, when you start looking for someone to marry, your heart gravitates towards someone who is completely different from you for a reason. That's God's design and purpose in all of this. And when you reject or condemn your spouse because they're different from you, you're rejecting God's very purpose in marriage. Now let me show you. Okay, opposites attract. That's the first puzzle piece. Now let me give you some components of that. Well, why do opposites attract? Well, number one, opposites attract to complement. I already told you that an azer makes up that which is lacking. So there's something lacking, and then God grants us a spouse to make up what's lacking. 
Well, the reason, the first reason for that is to complement. In other words, like two puzzle pieces that, that, that independent of each other are just two pieces with two random images on it. But when you connect them together, they suddenly begin to have meaning. They suddenly begin to have purpose. There suddenly becomes clarity. You suddenly begin to see, wait a second. You see, independently, well, they were just, they didn't mean anything. But when you connect them together, you see that there's, they're greater together than they were apart. Now, in this complementing each other, what do you think, what attitude, and I'm telling you, I've read every marriage book under the sun, secular, Christian, you name it. I've looked at all the research, all the studies for years, and most of it hasn't changed much. What do you think the number one attitude, the attitude that is the number one predictor of divorce in a marriage is? A critical spirit. When a spirit of criticism exists in your relationship, it is horrifically damaging. And it's all tangled up in this issue of being different. When I see a couple that has allowed criticism to build a, a nest in their relationship, most of that criticism is flowing through the fact that we're, we're different in these ways. And that opens up avenues for criticism. Now listen, I'm not, when I say a, a spirit of criticism, I don't mean complaining. Because complaining is simply just voicing your concern about something that you see. I'm not talking about that. A critical spirit, here's my definition of a critical spirit. Putting others down to create a false sense of significance, power, or a sense of pride. When you put other people down or when you put your spouse down in order to create this false sense of significance or power or pride, you are destroying the fabric that God laid out to make marriages successful. Here's a wrong belief. The wrong belief that I encounter all the time is this. Well, my sense of significance is increased whenever I point out the wrongs of others or when I point out the wrongs of my spouse. And the fact that I believe that I'm right justifies my criticism. One of the things, so if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, well, you know, uh, there's some tension in my marriage and I'm beginning to wonder now that you're saying this, if, if it's a spirit of criticism. Well, one of the ways that you will know that it's a spirit of criticism is one thing that's going to be thrown around your household all the time is going to be, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. It's a wrong belief. The scripture says in Romans chapter 2 verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Here's the correct belief. When I'm critical of others, I'm actually exposing my own sin. Because Christ lives in me, 
continually extending his mercy towards me, then I will reflect his compassion by comparing about, uh, by caring about the needs of others rather than by criticizing them. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were finishing up 1 Thessalonians, we talked about this passage in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Remember that conversation? Do you see how that conversation resolves this issue of criticism? resolves this issue of you're different than me and my way is better than your way and you need to change and be like me because uh, the fact that you're different from me is making us weaker or is frustrating me. You know, so many times, especially husbands, we get into a relationship, a marriage relationship, and because we maybe uh, feel more powerful and try to assert ourselves, so one of the things we try to do is just to conform our wives into our own image, which is the worst thing you can do. Listen. Basically, what you're saying is God made a mistake. He should have made another Adam, which none of us are saying that. You don't want your wife to be like you. You want her to be like her. Because What's not like you is going to help heal you because all the things you think are so right about you are just evidence of the fact that you really don't know. That we're all broken and incomplete and we need someone else to help us. And so all this tension comes about because we don't understand that in this oppositeness it's designed for us to complement each other. To complement each other. Now, the second part of this opposites attract equation is this. It's to complement each other. You see, we complement and we complement. I love the Song of Solomon. I've always wanted to preach a sermon series through the Song of Solomon. I just don't have the guts to do that yet. But when it happens, it's going to be a blast. But I love the Song of Solomon. And you know, it's interesting. In the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, as we're introduced to this woman, we find out that she's very insecure. And she tells us about her insecurity. She talks about how she's insecure because of the, the, the darkness of her skin, because, you know, she's been out in the sun a lot. And so it, 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 in that culture would have been a sign of, poverty that you had to work outside and so the lighter your skin was the more so she was very sensitive about that and then she even talks about how she has spots or blemishes on her skin but you know that when you get to chapter four the man responds directly to his lover's insecurities and here's what he says in chapter four verse seven You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. He talks about the beauty of her skin. He talks about all the things that in chapter 1 she was concerned about and insecure about. He comes back in chapter 4 and addresses those exact areas in her heart, you see, and compliments her. He he knows that that's a, a weak spot in her, and so he strengthens that. 
You know, all of us have three God-given inner needs. We all do. We have probably more than that, but we all have at least three that we share in common. And oftentimes, uh, when, when I talk about these things, women are much more uh, uh, prone to accept them and receive them and say, yeah, and men kind of push back from them. But the reality is, is that uh, these three inner needs uh, have no regard to gender. They're just as important uh, for both genders. What are these three inner needs that we all have? Well, the first one is love. We have a deep inner need to be loved. To know that someone unconditionally loves us. That someone is committed to our best interest. It's, a, it's a, a, a need for intimacy. The problem is that when I say the word intimacy, we think of things that really the Bible doesn't mean when it talks about intimacy. To be intimacy in a, in a biblical sense means to be fully known and yet fully accepted. We all have that desire. A, a, a desire to be loved. So Jesus comes along in John chapter 15. Now now notice what he says. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, he's, why is he telling us that? Because he knows that we have that need. Do you notice these themes are throughout the Bible? What about the second one? Significance. In other words, we all have this deep inner need to know that our lives have meaning and purpose. Have you ever just stopped and realized how many passages in the Scripture are devoted to conveying to us in a thousand different ways that you matter to God, you're important to God, but that God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. Why? Because we have a need to know that. We want to know that we're significant. The psalmist says in Psalm 57, I will cry out, To the God Most High, a God who fulfills His purpose for me. And thirdly, we have a need for security. A need for security. To feel accepted and secure. To feel a place of belonging. To feel a place of, of, you know, we we, we are completely off kilter when we're not secure. Now, men and women respond to insecurities in different ways, but we all have a deep-seated a deep need for security. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Scripture says, I have loved you, the Lord says, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, why does he say things like that? Because he wants us to know as his people that we're secure in him. Think about how much of the New Testament is devoted to conveying to me and you that we're secure in Christ. Why? Because we need to know that. All of us need to know that. Men seem to think, well, I don't know. Yes, you do. You absolutely need to know that. My goodness. I mean, I have talked to hundreds of you when, you know, when you feel insecure in your relationship with the Lord, it's a disaster. Why? Because we have a need to be secure. And so if I were going to sum up this this puzzle piece about oppositeness and about how God uses it to complement and to complement, well, I would say it this way. When you get married or in your marriage, devote yourself to celebrate how your spouse is different from you. I mean, just start today. Today. 
I mean, whatever's happened in the past, just start today. Today, realize today, from this day forward, I am going to begin to celebrate the ways that my spouse is different from me. And you'll realize what a challenge it is. But you'll also realize the incredible blessing that comes when we devote ourselves to that. And you realize, some of you in this room are realizing right now and have realized in the past how much time and energy you have expended and wasted and the damage that's been created by trying to make your spouse like you. No. No. God made an azer to complement what was lacking. Celebrate what's different. So that's the first puzzle piece. The second puzzle piece, put God first in everything. I told you these things were going to seem a little simplistic, but when we talk about them, you're going to see what I'm talking about. You see, we would all agree that, yes, we should put God first in everything. Mentally, everyone nods their head in church whenever you start to have this conversation. But if you really spent some time thinking about this principle, have you really spent some time thinking about, wow, what would it look like if I put God first in everything? Specifically, what would it look like if I put God first in my marriage? I would say this. If I were, I was talking with Lisa about this last night, and I was telling her, I said, you know, if I were going to, uh, you know, if me and you were the only two having the conversation about tomorrow's sermon, it would be puzzle piece number one would be Tony's puzzle piece, and puzzle piece number two would be Lisa's puzzle piece, meaning that, you know, I would be quick to begin to talk about this issue of opposites attract and how we need to embrace that and work at that, but I cannot even, I was thinking to myself, in fact, this is what I know, if you're in this room If you've ever had a conversation with my wife about marriage, ever, if you've ever gone to my wife, which so many of you ladies have, and sat down with her or talked to her just for a minute in the parking lot and said, you know, I'm just struggling in my marriage. I just need you to pray for me to help you. I know what she said because I've heard her say it 10,000 times. Her number one quick first response every time is always the same thing. She's going to tell you in a New York second. You know what makes my relationship with Tony so strong? Is I love God way more than I love him. I've heard her say that so many times. Now, the first time I heard her say that, I was kind of like, wait a second. I don't like the way you emphasize that. Did you have to say way more? Couldn't you just say a little more? Like Tony's like, you know, just barely in second place. She's like, "Uh uh-uh. You're way in second place. Now listen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about all these things that are going to distract us from putting God first. All these things that are going to stop us. And notice when you're reading in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going through things like money. Oh man. And how that's going to be a huge potential to distract us from putting God first in areas of our life. Right? Or he starts talking about worry. And how we get worried about other things. And so then that then propels us to then 
you know, take matters into our own hands and start doing things we ought not do and not putting God first and so on and so forth because that's our natural tendency. But then he says, right there in the midst of all that, he brings it all together and that's where he says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And I just think that because it's so familiar and because we can quote it and we learned it in, in a VBS and it just it seems so, you know, obvious. But we miss the principle that, that applies not just to all of life, but so much so to marriage. Because here's what I know about marriage. If you genuinely have a desire for your marriage to be more than it currently is right now. If you've prayed and said, God, will you, will you strengthen my marriage? Will you help me in my marriage? If you've, if you've been concerned or went and sought counsel or talked to somebody about marriage, somewhere in the process of all of that thinking and talking and counseling and all, comes this realization. You know, me and my spouse, me and my husband or me and my wife, we're not as close as we need to be. We're, we're, we're just not as close as we need to be. Maybe we're not as close as we used to be. Maybe we used to think we were closer than we really were. Whatever the case is, you end up in a place where you realize we're not as close as we need to be. And so here's where the, the train goes right off the tracks right here. What do you do when you say we're not as close as we used to be? You begin to work at getting closer to your spouse, and it will never work. It will never work. I hate to tell you, some of you are young in marriage, and you're you know, still in the first years of marriage, and, and what I'm saying right now is going to blow your mind, but you can hang that up. It will never work. When you decide, I am going to work at getting closer to my spouse. You're going to work and work and work and work. And you're not going to get closer to your spouse. Now there is a guaranteed way to get closer to your spouse. But it's not by looking at somebody that you want to be closer to. And then devoting yourself to getting closer to them. That's not going to work. That's Lisa's puzzle principle. She taught me that a long time ago. I noticed early in our marriage that she always felt closer to me than I did to her. That when, when I thought about us not being as close as we need to be, I, I noticed that she didn't feel that way. And that's when I realized there's something about this I don't understand. So you see that triangle on your outline, all right? That's the marriage triangle. This is how you get closer to your spouse. God is at the top of the triangle. The husband is at one bottom corner and the wife is at the other bottom corner. You put an arrow between the husband and the wife. Now, if you want to get closer to your spouse, what do you do? You get closer to God. And as a husband and wife get closer to God, what happens? They get closer together. You see? You're not going to get closer together by trying to get closer this way. It won't work. 
The way God intended for you to be closer is to go towards Him. And when you go towards Him, it'll draw you closer. And even if one of you is further up the side of the the triangle than the other one, you're still getting closer and closer and closer. That's the way forward. So you see, what happens is all of these problems begin to shed away. See, right now, all the things that are going on in your mind, some of you are already, you're making a list already. And you've got this list. And on this list are all the, the, the reasons or the challenges or the struggles with what I'm saying and why you, you know, feel so discouraged and why it's not everything it ought to be or however you're verbalizing it in the confines of your own mind. And let me tell you something. As you begin to draw closer to God, the list will begin to dissipate. And you'll begin to realize things. You'll begin to realize that, listen, uh, you know, we, we, think, we think that people that have a strong marriage, the reason their marriage is strong is because, you know, people would go talk to Lisa and they think, you know, how come your marriage is so good? Uh, you know, they expect Lisa to say, because my husband's awesome, which would be nice once in a while. I'm just saying, you know, compliment. I just talked about that, right? Just throw that in there. But that's not what she says. She says, God's awesome. She said, Jesus is amazing. And the more I love Jesus, the more he gives me love for my husband. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that the best love that I can humanly receive is love given to me by somebody that's in love more with Jesus. You see, now I've learned over the years that that really is why she loves me so well. It's because she loves Jesus more. And the more she loves Him, the more He draws her closer to me. Now, the more maybe, as we are both seeking after God, part of it is God's changing us along the way. And so we're drawing closer together and He's changing us as we're seeking Him because seeking Him is going to change you. That's part of it. I mean, it's going to change the other one, but it's also going to change you. See, it's both and. Everything's changing as we're moving up the sides of the triangle. So here's my suggestion for you with regards to putting God first in everything. Start simple. Set some anchors in the ground that you will, you refuse to move. Some moorings that will hold you steady that are just going to be what they're going to be, what they're going to be. There might be all sorts of other things in your life that may change as you grow and may develop in different ways, but certain things will not change. I'll just give you a short list of things, just very simple, that if you just sit down with your spouse and say, okay, here's step one. Formally together as husband and wife, Make a covenant. Make a covenant with God 
that says, God, our desire is to put you first in everything that we do. And then begin to, to make that practical. Like, for example, uh, anchor number one might be, I'm going to make all of my decisions with regards to my family based on Scripture. So you see, it, it creates an environment where, I mean, I don't even remember what it, what, what it was like to have a conversation with my wife about what we're going to do about anything that wasn't, well, the Bible says this and this, you know, this book, this chapter, and this verse. That's how we make every decision in our life. Every single decision. We don't just sit around and have a conversation about, well, what about this? or what? We just say, what does the Bible say? I mean, well, I can, whenever we get stumped on something difficult, we'll just be sitting there on the bed. I've got my Bible open, she's got her Bible open, and we're having a conversation about what we're going to do. I mean, it's just that simple. What does God want us to do? We're going to make all of our decisions about our family based on the Scripture. Anchor number two, we're going to absolutely, positively, no matter what happens, nothing is going to violate the fact that we are going to make a day that we devote to worshiping the Lord in the community of other believers as a family. I don't care if I get a job offer to pay me a million dollars a week I don't care what happens, come hell or high water, Tony, his wife, and his kids are going to church. That's what we did the whole time growing up. It was non-negotiable. How many times do we just let all this slide away? We just let other... Th I mean, I'm just saying, you know how complicated life is. All of you in the room that have young children, you know. You know that it's easy to say when they're babies but because you don't have, you know, select soccer tournaments and 14 million things and school projects and all this other kind of stuff. It's going to get complicated. But you're just going to have to figure something out. It doesn't, and look, I didn't say it was the same day. I said there's a day. Just make a day. Put an anchor in the ground and say, you know what? We're going to, me and you are going to church. We're going to give a, a day of our week to fellowship together in the presence of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Seems so simple. Next anchor. I'm going to give to the Lord's work. You know, I know that as soon as I start talking about this, everybody gets tense, but get over it. So many families are in complete disarray because you're selfish. You're selfish. You go home and read your Bible and see what it says. It says when you're selfish, God says, I'm going to curse you. That's what he says. And I'm just telling you, you're never going to prosper being selfish. You're never going to prosper being selfish. And the more generous you are, the more blessed you're going to be. You're just going to see, just, just you sit down with your spouse and say, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to put God first in our lives. We're going to make decisions about our family based on the Bible. We're going to, we're going to be in church amongst the fellowship of other brothers and sisters at least once a week. We're going to do that. So that way there's no opportunity for a pattern to start in your life where, you know, you miss a week here, then you miss two weeks, and you, you know how it goes. And then you tell your spouse. You see, you can't, you can't tell yourself this. It's not going to do any good. Both of you have to come to the same conclusion. You know what we're going to do? We're going to give generously to the Lord's work. That's what we're going to do. It will prevent us from getting all off track on our own agenda. It will solve so many problems. And then just try to make a, build a, an overarching habit in your life of just saying, you know, I, I want to think about God first in whatever things that I'm doing. Trust me, just this simple conversation will begin to draw you up the triangle closer to one another. If Lisa were up here this morning, and believe me, that's not going to happen. Because she said, so in this Mary series, am I going to get to talk? I'm like, that ain't happening. <laughs> no. She has no filter. I would die. I'm like, uh-uh. No, no, no. You might talk about something, but it's not going to be our marriage. I know where that's going to go. Because if you ask her, she'll tell you. But at least it won't be up here in front of everybody. But if she were here, she is here, but if she were in here, I know what she would tell you. And you know what? The people in this room that, my goodness, have, have, in, have, have gone so much further in marriage than I can ever dream of, than maybe I'll even ever even be able to achieve. Think about, you know, Miss Carol's up here talking about that song she sang, and I'm thinking, you know, you want to know about marriage? Go talk to Tressie. 71 years. Just go to her house. She's got a bench in the backyard right up under a tree, and go sit on the bench with her and ask her anything you want. Believe me, she'll tell you anything you want to know. Ask her. And there's just a wealth of wisdom that you can't even... Um, how, do you, how do you make it 71 years? years that's amazing and if you know her then you know it hadn't been easy 71 years that didn't come out exactly like a minute alright I'll come sit on the bench William we'll straighten that out Maybe we do need Lisa in here. But here's the thing. This is what she'd say to you. She'd say, if you stay in love with Jesus, you'll stay in love with your spouse. Don't let that just seem, oh, you know, well, of course. No, not well, of course. I'm telling you, in the practical reality of life, that is absolutely, positively, 100% true. You just stay in love with Jesus. You just keep loving Jesus. Now, 
Maybe this morning I've, I've stacked up a, a lot of questions in your mind as we've answered some more, but just be patient. This is just the beginning. There's a lot more for us to talk about in the weeks to come. But just let these two puzzle pieces begin to set a tone in your life and understanding about marriage. And understand, whenever you ask yourself, why did God do the things the way he did them with regards to marriage? Because marriage uniquely is a symbol. And it's a symbol of what we'll celebrate in just a few moments. The relationship that Jesus has with the church. Which is why whenever the Bible talks about husbands and wives, it brings this whole relationship of Jesus and the church into it because it's inescapable. And so it's really the perfect morning for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we have to, we have to stop and take a moment and realize that we can't come to the, the table without a time of confession, a time of repentance, a time to search our own hearts and to make sure that we're ready to do so. The Bible strongly warns about doing so. So we're going to have a time of invitation. It's going to be an opportunity for you to, to just search your heart and, and, and to, to, to weed out any unconfessed sin and, and just say, God, just, just begin to repent. Remember, repentance doesn't gain you forgiveness. It gains you access to the forgiveness you already have as a child. And if you're here this morning and you... You don't know Jesus as your Savior. You're struggling with assurance of that. You, you, you haven't followed Him in believer's baptism. You feel God leading you to plant your life here and to join this fellowship. Whatever it is that you need to do, this is the time for you to do that. Before we move to the Lord's table where we say, God, we, we come with, with open hearts, thankful to you, recognizing our failure and our sinfulness and our need for you, but celebrating your broken body and spilled blood on our behalf. See, everything that makes life worth living comes back to Jesus. If Jesus doesn't do what Jesus did, what hope do we have? It's all about him. And the first step is just saying, I'm not going to do it my way any longer. But Lord, I am surrendering my life to you. You are now in charge. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. So let's stand together and bow our heads.